What if you're a billionaire? What if you're a billionaire who lives in a city that is one of the most expensive property prices in the world? What if you can't get the land you need to build a huge sprawling mansion? What could you do? Maybe buy a plot of land and build up? Build a skyscraper just for you and your family, sprawling vertically upwards. Introducing Antilla, the city-based upward-sprawling mansion. The city, Mumbai. The owner, Mukesh Ambani, one of the richest people on the planet, spending upwards of US dollars 2 billion in 2011 money. It is the most expensive private home on earth. What does he and his family have to do to get that rich, that wealthy? What do they have that others don't? Is it money? In the same city that houses the Ambani family, you have countless people who are poor, some in abject poverty, begging for that one thing that the Ambanis have plenty of, money. A financial transaction is an agreement or communication carried out between a buyer and a seller to exchange an asset for payment. The Ambanis have more to give in exchange for other stuff than most of the rest of us. The poorer people have even less than maybe the, those of us listening to this podcast. There are less Ambanis, while there are a lot more who are poorer than the Ambanis. But is wealth something else entirely? Maybe wealth is not something to be confused with financial assets and transactions, though that is, or it sounds like, a lasting benefit of being wealthy. The irony of wealth is that those of us who have little aspire to accumulate it, while those of us who have a ton of wealth are trying to preserve it. That godfather of capitalism, Adam Smith, said that real tragedy of the poor is the poverty of their aspirations. Not entirely sure I believe that sentiment. Wealth and poverty are two different things. One can be wealthy without much money, but aspirations or motivations do matter. Wealth and its offshoots, including money, are a state of mind, not just a physical manifestation. At the individual level, possessing a substantial net worth is known as wealthy. Net worth is defined as the current value of one's assets, less liabilities, excluding the principal and trust accounts, etc. Wealth can be described as an abundance of items of economic value or the state of controlling or possessing such items, usually in the form of money, real estate, or personal property. An individual who is considered wealthy, affluent, or rich is someone who has accumulated enough wealth relative to others in their own society or group of reference. Mansa Musa I was emperor of the Kingdom of Mali in West Africa, arguably the wealthiest person ever. Mansa Musa made his fortune by exploiting his country's salt and gold production. Musa is said to have brought several tons of gold to Mecca when he made a pilgrimage there in 1324, deflating the value of gold across much, if not all, of North Africa. Reported as being inconceivably rich by contemporaries, 
there's really no way to put an accurate number on his wealth. He wasn't the only one. Musa was one of many. By default, monarchs, then, like today, are wealthy. They have money and they have power. The Byzantine or Roman emperors of the Eastern Roman Empire after the fall of the Western Empire were wealthy. The British monarchs too. If we think Elizabeth II is wealthy, she is, then imagine the wealth of Queen Victoria when the empire was real and happening. This podcast isn't about the history of the wealthy. It is about wealth itself, lessons learned, and really, if we can learn anything about the nature of wealth creation. At the end of this podcast, I can make some suggestions about how you and I can become wealthy based on our historical knowledge of wealth. Economic terminology distinguishes between wealth and income. Wealth or savings is a stock variable. That is, it is measurable at a date in time. However, wealth isn't just economics. So what is it? To understand that, we need to take a crash course in of all things, anthropology. So what is anthropology? Anthropology is a scientific study of humanity, concerned with human behavior, human biology, cultures and societies in both the present and the past, including past human species. Social anthropology is a study of patterns of behavior in human societies and cultures. Cultural anthropology is a branch of anthropology focused on the study of cultural variation among humans. In this study of anthropology, five areas were identified to determine wealth. Number one, infrastructure capital. Two, accumulation of non-necessities. Three, control of arable lands. Four, access to technologies. And five, getting work done through others. Let's look at each in turn, starting with number one, infrastructure capital. Infrastructure capital, or public capital, is the capital that is centrally organized. In early humans and ape societies, it could be tools, clothing, inheritance, or funeral rites. In post-civilizational times, the social capital of entire societies was often defined in terms of its relation to infrastructural capital that included things like forts, cities, city walls, armies, etc. Secondly, we had the accumulation of non-necessities. What are non-necessities? Well, humans seem to have had clearly defined rulers and status hierarchies. The Sungir archaeological site in Russia have revealed elaborate funeral clothing on a man and a pair of children buried there approximately 28,000 years ago. This indicates a considerable accumulation of wealth by some individuals or families. The high artisan skill also suggests the capacity to direct specialized labor to tasks that are not of any obvious utility to the group's survival. In other words, you're doing stuff beyond your basic survival needs. Number three, the rise of irrigation and urbanization, especially in ancient Sumer and later Egypt. It unified the ideas of wealth and control of land and agriculture. Four, industrialization. This emphasized the role of technology. Many jobs were automated, 
Machines replaced some workers while other workers became more specialized. Labor specialization became critical to economic success. However, physical capital, as it came to be known, consisting of both the natural capital and infrastructural capital, became the focus and analysis of wealth. And number five, one common trait for the wealthy is the ability to get work done by others. This can be done using different motivation techniques, including force via raw power, persuasion, and or money and payment. As the Industrial Revolution took hold, at least in Europe, we started to see an emergence in society of something else. Whereas in the pre-Industrial Revolution era, you were a slave, peasant, an elite, or the monarch, in the post-Industrial world, you were lower, middle, or upper class. Of course, the monarch would sit at the top of that tree. Class society, or class-based society, is an organizing of society where the ownership of property, the means of production, and wealth is the determining factor of the distribution of power, in which those with more property and wealth are stratified higher in the society, and those without access to the means of production and without wealth are considered lower in society. There is this amazing sketch that helps explain the class structure. It is from the two Ronnies a comedy duo from Britain. I'm about to play it. But before I do, just imagine the scene. In it, you have three men with the tallest one on the far left, a middle plump guy, and the shortest guy on the right. I look down on him because I am upper class. I look up to him because he is upper class. But I look down on him because he is lower class. <laughs> I am middle class. <laughs> I know my place. <laughs> I look up to them both. But I don't look up to him as much as I look up to him. Because <laughs> he has got innate breeding. I have got innate breeding, but I have not got any money. So sometimes I look up to him. I still look up to him. Because although I have money, I am vulgar. But I am not as vulgar as him. So I still look down on him. I know my place. I look up to them both. But while I am poor, I am industrious, honest and trustworthy. Had I the inclination, I could look down on them, but I don't. We all know our place, but what do we get out of it? I get a feeling of superiority over them. I get a feeling of inferiority from him, but a feeling of superiority over him. I get a pain in the back of my neck. That sketch is hilarious. It is actually from 1966. You can find it uploaded to your favorite video streaming service. I encourage you to look it up. Just type in the two Ronnies class for it to show up. If you take the class system a tad further, you can enter the realm of the caste structure. Caste is unlike class. It is a form of social stratification characterized by marriage, living quarters, occupation, and economic significance. There is a nuance from class. But let's go back to class. 
there are three types of class, as we just heard from the sketch. There's an upper class, a middle class, and a lower class. The upper class is the social class composed of those who are rich, well-born, powerful, or a combination of all of these. They usually wield the greatest political power. In some countries, wealth alone is sufficient to allow entry into the upper class. In others, only people who are born or marry into certain aristocratic bloodlines are considered members of the upper class, and those who gain great wealth through commercial activity are looked down by aristocracy in certain countries. Then we have the middle class. In the richest countries, yes, Western ones mainly, middle class is the most contested of the three categories. The broad group of people in contemporary society in Western countries who fall into socio-economic groups between the lower and upper classes are considered middle class. That is a huge chunk of the Western population. Middle class is essentially the group of people with typical everyday jobs that pay significantly more than the poverty line, but significantly less than the upper class line. Often these people work in sales, office jobs, they're teachers, they're cooks, they might be nurses or doctors. The lower class, also referred to as the working class, are those employed in low-paying wage jobs with very little economic security. The term lower class also refers to persons with low income. The working class is sometimes separated into those who are employed but lacking financial security. In other words, the working poor. People could be working in factories, construction sites, etc. Then we have something called the underclass. The underclass is a segment of the population that occupies the lowest possible position in a class hierarchy. Those who are long-term unemployed and or homeless, especially those receiving welfare from the state, are often underclass. In poorer societies, this is a massive part of many countries' populations. One of the major benefits of wealth through the ages has been social privilege. Social privilege is a theory of special advantage or entitlement used to one's own benefit or to the determinant of others. In case of wealth, it gives you access to certain lifestyles that many others might not have access to. Namely, education, health and nutrition, and employment. Let's start with education. A person's social class has a significant impact on their educational opportunities. Not only are upper-class parents able to send their children to exclusive schools that are perceived to be better, but in many places, state-supported schools for children of the upper class are of a much higher quality than those of states provided for children of the lower class. Health and nutrition. Lower classes of people's experience a wide array of health problems because of their economic status. They're unable to use healthcare as often, and when they do, it is of lower quality, even though they tend to experience a much higher rate of health issues. Lower-class families have higher rates of infant mortality, cancer, cardiovascular disease, and disabling physical injuries. Additionally, poor people tend to work in much more hazardous conditions, yet have much less, if any, health insurance provided for them, as compared to middle- and upper-class workers. And number three, employment. Those in upper-class and middle-class enjoy greater freedoms in their occupations. They are usually more respected, enjoy more diversity, and can exhibit some authority. 
those in lower classes tend to feel more alienated, have lower work satisfaction overall. The physical conditions of the workplace differ between classes, while the middle class worker may suffer alienating conditions or lack job satisfaction, blue-collar workers are often more apt to suffer alienating, often routine work with obvious physical hazards, injury, and even death. When you look at the wealthy, there are less of them. They are exceedingly rare. Many are born into wealth. Others are building wealth and passing it down. Some lose wealth. Others give wealth away. I want to spend the next few minutes looking at ways wealth has been created through current and historical figures. What can we learn from them and how can we build and then preserve our own wealth? I put wealth into two categories. Number one, individuals, individual wealth. And number two, group wealth, which I split into further two categories, institutions and countries. But I'm going to combine all of these and focus more on the individual. So let's see what they all have in common through history. Well, one, war and violence. Since the start of human civilization, one of the quickest ways to attain wealth is via war. The main point here is, of course, first, win the war. But war and violence has always been one of the best and most ancient methods to wealth. When I think of the Emperor Ashoka, Alexander the Great, William the Conqueror, or Genghis Khan, the impact of war leads to new resources, means more revenue, and more wealth. There is, of course, severe downside risk. And for most of you listeners, I'd strongly recommend against war and violence. Failure and victory means almost certain death and possibly brutally administered torture, especially if captured. Another example is someone like the Roman Byzantine emperors. The ability to not just expand their empire, but to hold their own. Give war to the invaders. Then there's plunder and loot. One of the upsides of winning wars is letting your soldiers, nearly always men, to go look and plunder the spoils of conquest. This is typically a horrid exercise, with horrible excesses against women, slavery for others, and death for the remaining. Gold and other objects are often stolen. You don't want to be at the receiving end of plunder. Then you could go into dicey activities. This is also one of those get-rich-quick ideas. It might involve really dubious things like selling your body, organs, or yourself into slavery, getting involved in the drug trade, or other illegal illicit activities. It gives you the ability to acquire wealth. Often the risks are high. You can lose your life. You can lose everything. You could lose your family. But you could also have massive wealth upside. Then there is exploration for exploitation. This is where an individual goes outside their current physical geographic boundary to generate wealth. Again, elevated risk. We have seen ample examples in the past. Obvious is the Spanish conquest of the Americas, but there are countless others. Often, this is at the expense of settled peoples at the location. I often liken this to nomadic tribes like the Huns, the Mongols, or the Turks, who unsettled, settled peoples. Well, that was the past. What can we learn in the present? 
Well, first, do not do war, violence, plunder, illegal activities, or exploration for exploitation. What you should do is use these as proxies. Let me sum that up. First, take risks. The higher the risk, the higher that reward. But be open to massive downside. Massive stress and a lot of thick skin. But skin you must have to be in the game for attaining wealth. Number two, provide a solution to a problem. To generate wealth, someone else must lose it. Unlike plunder, you want them to give up their own wealth by by themselves. So you need to give someone something in return. You can start an enterprise or you can learn a skill and apply it in gainful employment. And finally, get outside of your comfort zone. Traveling gives you a perspective like no other. Meeting people you would not always meet gives you personally something that a settled person does not have. A life experience with perspective giving you an edge when you do decide to settle. So, you see, wealth is not just money. Travel, meeting people, providing solutions to problems, and risk-taking are activities that do not mean automatic financial gain. Financial gain is a positive side effect if it happens. Typically, though, it does happen. At least that is what the history says. Consider this. Only about 5% of people on the planet move countries in any given year, legal or illegal. Of course, 5% of 8 billion is a ton of people, but it is far from everyone moving. You need to join that 5% who travel. You need to join that group who provide solutions. And you need to join those people who take risks. But what else do you do in order to build the wealth? What do you need to build that wealth? Well, you need your health, mental and physical. You need common sense. And you need to have trust among your tribe. You don't need to be educated to gain wealth, but you need skills others can use. The mass education indoctrination industry is of course a relatively recent phenomenon. So history tells us that mass education is an option, a societal need, not a must. Another observation of wealth generators is their ability to get others to buy into their ideas. So they have supporters, an army if you will. They also have others to do their work for them. They are not always active in the generation of their own wealth. Others might be. They let others share in the plunder, and thus, by default, they work to generate wealth for the people that they support. Abundance. What is abundance? It is the exceptionally large quantity of something, just anything. To generate wealth, you need to believe in abundance. That wealth grows on trees, probably because it does grow on trees, food, grows on trees and in the ground, do you have the skill to harvest it? Let us go back to where we started the podcast, with Mukesh Ambani, who built the skyscraper mansion in the middle of the city of Mumbai. There's one of him, of course. Luck plays its part. His dad was also an industrialist. However, the current wealth is his. You can say, well, this guy's a narcissist, a capitalist, he plays politics, he's in bed with the politicians, whatever. But it is clear from looking at the past that this kind of cutthroat activity to get at abundance is the norm and not the exception. It is also the norm for most of the rest of us to watch this guy do what he's doing as a distant observer. Some will be in his sphere of influence and support or work for his wealth. 
others will be out to get his wealth. Leading me to the next question, what does history tell us about those who have wealth? Well, they spend and obsess constantly on keeping the status quo, preserving and growing their wealth. Growing their wealth is secondary. Preservation of the wealth and the ability to pass it down to their children is the primary objective. You hear about those lottery winners who do not have the money in a year? Those people do not understand the nature of the wealthy, to preserve and not to give away. There are also times when wealth clashes with wealth. After all, Napoleon invaded Russia. Bad mistake. Only one science abundance can win. Sure enough, luck plays a part, but so does common sense and hubris. Another example, Microsoft meets IBM, or Tesla meets Ford. It's when the French Revolution happened, or the Communist Revolutions in the 1900s. Complacency also has no place. Lose allies, lose your head, lose your cutting edge, lose your status. You, personally, can make a bad investment in a property or a stock. Someone sold you something at a high price and you are stuck with it. Sell low or just hold and pray it goes back up in price to help get you out. Abundance meet abundance. But we know from history that once you have the wealth, you need to do anything you can to preserve that wealth. In the future, you now know what you need to do. Wealth is plentiful. It is available to you if you want it. You must want it badly. You will need to build a supporter base of people who will eventually generate the wealth for you. You must take risks. And you also know that you have to lose. Lose a lot. But be thick-skinned enough to blast past the stress and anxiety of losing. You know that without your mental and physical health, and that of your friends' and family's mental and physical health, you're in trouble. Once you have the wealth, it is all about preservation and growth of the wealth. At that stage, you will pontificate to yourself that it is not about just the money. That is, after you have moved up that social ladder to a per-middle class, that you start thinking, well, it's not just about the money. Wealth is a mindset. That is why only a few people have it. Remember, though, if you have the time and resources to listen to this podcast, already you have more wealth than a billion plus people on this planet. This has been an Alternative History Podcast. Please like, follow, subscribe, and comment on your platform of choice. Thank you very much. Thank you.